Kevin Willis. Um, there are many I could have talked about, but Evelyn came to mind. As an elder's wife, she was always supportive and positive. And as a professor's wife, she opened her home to college students and was always interested in their uh, classes and what they were going to do in their future. She studied marriage and family therapy because she wanted to serve families in the church. She loved seeing young families and hearing them in worship because she knew that they were setting patterns and rhythms in the lives of their children and in their marriages that would be sustaining and blessing. When we first came, she and John took us to dinner and had a visit with us and we loved college students too, was why we were here, and they just became role models for us and how they handled their um, time at ACU and we just love them for that, as do so many other people. Evelyn Willis, she was uh, a good listener. She held confidences. She was uh, a loving servant. And um, this is just a part of her legacy. Please stand for the reading of the word from 1 Peter chapter 2. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For instance, in scripture, see, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In honor, oh well, sorry. <laughs> this honor then is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner and the stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the excellence of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Highland. It's good to see you here. Um, you could imagine, in fact, as you leave this building, what I'd like you to imagine as you go. Uh, look at the stack stone the architectural design on the walls. And just, just pick one, it doesn't matter which one, just pick one and make that your stone. That's your block. That's the contribution that you have. And maybe just for a minute, think about the time that you volunteered for a middle school retreat or the time that you led a small group or you were a dig leader or you were a part of a huddle or you served in a thousand different ways. But 
But what I really want you to do is not so much think of the way that you contributed, but to look at the stone that's below yours, the stone that supports your stone. And I want you to put a name on that stone. Who would that be? Who poured into you? Who made you? Who taught you how to serve? Who taught you how to be hospitable? Who taught you how to teach? Who taught you how to be wise? Who taught you the way that you should go? And just for a moment as you leave the building, as it's, as it's time to go, be grateful. Thank Thank God for the person and the life that poured into you, that helped you become the living stone that is part of God's holy temple. Would you pray with me, please? God, our Father, for everything you've done for us, we are grateful. For the countless lives that you've put in our in our experience and in our story that have shaped us and influenced us for the better, that taught us how to live and how to love and how not to be cruel, how to be patient and not bitter. For those that have taught us what it means to be like your son Jesus, we give you praise. And in our hearts and our minds, their names are not very far from us. It's easy to say who they are, and we are grateful to you for them. And now, Father, as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. And Father, I'm grateful for Mike, who gave me those words, who gave me that prayer to bless this church. He is part of the stones that laid the foundation in my life. And it's together that the people say, amen. It was about a few years ago, and... Uh, my wife and I decided to go on, our, on an international trip. It was the first time we'd ever done this in our marriage. Both of us had traveled before that to different places. But I had, you know, kind of drugged my heels and busy with other things. And I hadn't realized that, you know, like the passport wait at that time was really, really long. But I got my stuff together, the documents that you need. I filled out the application, all the identity that you need and the cashier's check. And I, I show up at the county clerk's office in Santa Clara, California, and I sit in the, the waiting area. And I had to sit for like an hour and a half, but I had heard all these terrible stories about like what it's like to get your passport renewed. And, and so I thought, well, this hasn't been that bad because my number gets called and I walk up to the spot. And I hand them my application, and I hand them my ID documents, and I hand them my check, and I think, wow, this wasn't that bad. This is pretty awesome. And the woman said, oh, no, 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 sir, you don't understand. This isn't the place where you turn in your documents. This is the place to make the appointment for the moment where you can turn in your documents. Your appointment is June 16th. You should expect your passport in six to eight weeks later. That was a problem for us because our flight was scheduled to leave June 11th. I panic. But we do some research and we found out there is one place in the Bay Area where you can show up that day and give them your documents. And it happened not to be very far from our house. So I, you know, at lunch break the next day, I go over to this post office, go around to the back where the passport spot is, 
and going to step in. The door's locked. There's a sign on the door that said, we have already booked all of our appointments for today. Please come back another day. And so I get online and I do a little research and I find out there's a Yelp story that says, yeah, I got there at 10 o'clock in the morning. They were already filled. I got there at 8 o'clock in the morning. The line was around the corner. I didn't get in. And then somebody at the bottom said, if you really want to be able to get in that day, you need to show up early. Early. Now, I am not a morning person. But the next day, I roll out of bed at 4 a.m. I pull on a hat and a hoodie. I grab a lawn chair, a good book, and all of my documents. I drive straight to this post office so I can turn in my documents. There's already 30 people in front of me in line. But I figure 30 people, I can probably manage this. Open up my folding chair, sit down. 8 o'clock, about three or four hours later, my opportunity comes up. I get to go in the door, they give me my number. They say, wait here, you'll probably be seen about 11 o'clock. So I wait till 11 o'clock. No big deal, I'm saving the trip, it's gonna be just fine. And it's my turn, and so I walk up to the, 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 the most kind and compassionate government worker I've ever met in my entire life. And I, I was gonna tell her my story, she doesn't care. So I hang down, hand down my check, and I hang down my documents. And I hand down all of my ID. And I even have that little picture that they make you take for the passport. And I say, it's good. I've saved the trip. I'm out the door. And as I walk, I hear, wait a moment, sir. There's a problem with your passport photo. I've been waiting eight hours. I said, what's the problem with the photo? She said, your head's too big. And I thought to myself, how did she know I was a preacher? Like, there's no way that she could figure that out. And I thought, I'm going to have to go back to Walgreens. I'm going to have to get another photo. I'm going to have to do this whole thing tomorrow. She said, yeah, you can get another photo, or we can just take one here. Need I remind you, I rolled out of bed at 4 a.m., threw on a hoodie and a hat. Brothers and sisters, this was my passport photo for the next 10 years. <laughs> That's the kind of photo that's supposed to have like numbers along the bottom, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's not so much that I was afraid that they wouldn't let me out of the US, it's that they wouldn't let me come back in. <laughs> and we went, to, we went to Southeast Asia. The Cambodian passport office does not smile on goofy passport photos. They don't smile at all. But I got the photo, I got the passport, and we got to travel. And this was the first time I'd ever been outside of the West. You know, I'd been to Europe, but I'd never traveled to, to an Eastern country. And we went to visit some friends who work in one particular Southeast Asian country, and they do Bible translation there. And we, we flew into Thailand, and then we flew over to this particular country. And, and there are some oddities. There's always oddities when you travel to a different place. The culture is a little bit different. But one of the things that was weird about this particular country is the way they drive. Because they get their cars from Thailand, and Thailand was connected to the British driving system. So all of the wheels, or all of the steering wheels, you know, are on the, the right side of the car because they drive on the left side of the road. It's the opposite of the U.S. But in 1970, on the advice, I kid you not, of a wizard, 
the uh, nation switched the driving to the right side of the road. So they drive on the same side as the U.S., but the steering wheel is still on the right side because they're getting their cars from Thailand. So if you ride in a taxi in a southeast Asian culture of traffic behavior, it's a different kind of moral pattern that is terrifying, and you sit in the front seat, it is the scariest moment you've had in your life. Everything was just a little bit different. The food that you got for breakfast was, was different. We, we had a hotel, and, and uh, they, they gave us a nice room because we were international. And the first night that we were there, the AC had uh, tripped a breaker, and it wouldn't turn on. We're trying to sleep. It's 89 degrees in there. We're brutally tired from our, our trip, and we can't, we can't rest. And the whole time... The, there, we're right next to the lobby. It was the nicest uh, room they had. There is a TV that's blaring. It's just some sort of like soap opera, and it's all night long. And at 1130 at night, I couldn't stand it anymore. And I walk out into the lobby to ask them, can you please turn off the TV? I have no idea how I'm going to communicate this. There's nobody in the lobby. So I just unplug it. And I go back to bed, hopefully to fall asleep, right? About 15 minutes later, TV turns back on. And I walk out there, nobody there, unplug it, walk back to bed. Five minutes later, TV's back on. Walk back out there, and this time I've just about had it because I don't know who's playing this joke on me, but I'm sick of it. I bang my arms on the counter, I reach over to pull that plug out one last time, and I happen to look down, and there's this 13-year-old boy who sleeps at the floor behind the counter. That's his job, is to be the night person, and he looks up because somebody keeps unplugging his TV that he needs as white noise to help him sleep from the sound of the traffic outside and all the blaring deals. He just, I, I woke him up, he's startled and terrified because there's this angry white American staring down at him. And I try to communicate in the kindest gestures that I can manage to, you know, we, do, we don't need any more TV. And the next day, our friend who can speak the language comes in and says, they really just need a room on the other side of the building. It was hard to communicate. Everything was strange. Have you ever been in that place where everything feels strange? Everything's so different and you never quite feel safe? whether it's the microbes in the water or the mosquitoes that carry malaria or the fear of just getting mugged on the street. We were in Cambodia, which, by the way, has more assault rifles per capita than any other place in the world, and I was on my guard. And I told my wife as we were walking out, hey, I just want you to be real careful as we get past this corner because there's a bunch of guys just, like, hanging out there, and I don't, they're just staring at us. Like, so just, just be careful because I didn't want to get mugged. And my wife looks at me and she laughs and she says, Shane, they're not trying to mug us. They're trying to give us a ride. Those are taxi drivers. And I just couldn't tell. I didn't know. And as much as I learned to love that experience of being somewhere else and strange food became exotic food and, and customs became led to understanding, it just makes you exhausted and you long for home. You long for your own bed. Peter tells the churches he's writing to 
to live out their lives in reverent fear as exiles. And these aren't Jewish Christians that are struggling to remain culturally Jewish in a pagan city. Rather, these are Gentile Christians who became converts. And they're trying to live cruciform lives in the city that they grew up in. It's not that their culture changed. It's that Christ has so fundamentally shaped their understanding. They've taken a cruciform view of the world that they feel like exiles and strangers and aliens in their own neighborhoods. They're believers who became exiled from their families. But they've been made family through the story of the Christ, through the story of the cross. And once that used to be familiar has now become repugnant and they just can't live the way they used to anymore. There are these two kind of converging effects that I think are really shaping um, our our world today. One is the the post-Christendom culture. Our world is becoming much more secular and postmodern epistemology. And what I mean by that is that Truth based in experience is more powerful than truth based in affirmation. Now I'm going to unpack that for you. And because actually that's good news for us. The benefit is that communities centered around shared experience is more formative than demonstrable facts. When we have a shared experience together, it's going to feel more like truth to us than reading something in a book or logically coming to a conclusion. And the good news is this is how God works. Today's Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, there is a story of believers that are gathered together praying and worshiping God, and the Holy Spirit shows up and does something powerful in that moment, and they can't deny that there is a new system, there is a new paradigm of thinking, there is a new way of us living and believing. Arguments didn't get them there. Logical um, syllogisms won't get them there. It's the power of the Spirit they got them there. And that's good news for the church. Because we can form community around that. We can become a people around that. But this isn't a truth just that we own. This is a truth that everybody knows. Everybody wants to create community around shared experience. Whole Foods is creating community around shared experience. Whole Foods doesn't hire as many people to work on their aisles as, as, as other grocery stores do because they rely on their customers to make recommendations to other customers. And if you've ever been in a Whole Foods, you know that's true. Somebody will ask you, hey, do you like this wine or do you like this fancy cheese? They're forming community. It's pretentious community, but it's a real experience. <laughs> Starbucks sprays me with coffee-flavored perfume when I walk through the door so that I am easily identifiable to other caffeine addicts. They're creating community around shared experience. And the criteria for the legitimacy of your community's shared experience is the degree which it authentically makes you different from your neighbor. The truth that Whole Foods has learned, the truth that Starbucks is exploring, is the truth that the church has held for 2,000 years. That when you feel like an exile or a stranger or an alien, when you go to that place to find somebody in a foreign city that just knows English and you want to hug them like a brother because it feels like you just came home, 
Our shared experiences forms community. And sometimes exile is not that bad. We went on a, a vacation a few years ago with our boy, and it was, it was a gift that we'd received. It was to like a kind of a golf course resort. It was somebody that uh, had a timeshare and wasn't going to be able to use it that year. And so we went there, and they had all of these wonderful things to do. They had putt-putt for the kids. They had places to play. They had restaurants to eat. And they had this really awesome pool. It was this waiting pool for little kids. And it was just this kind of long slope that started at, you know, a quarter inch of water and ended at about a foot and a half of water. And my eldest son, he got so excited when he learned he could just run down there straight into the water. And he'd run back out. He'd run back in, and then he'd stop at the right moment, the right depth, and he'd just jump and land on his bottom. He did that for hours. Back and forth, back and forth. Run, jump, splash. And he looks at us and he says, why don't we live here? It's better here, right? And sometimes that's the truth you discover. God takes you from a place. And that place has some toxic habits and toxic behaviors. It's unsafe and it's unhealthy for you. And he takes you to, God takes you to a place that, that is a place of healing and, and recompense and, and, and growth and nurturing. And you wonder to yourself, it's better here. Why don't we just stay here? We don't have to go back. Peter says that we are a community of living stones. It's a breathing building. And that Jesus is our cornerstone. <coughs> Engineers with considerably less resources and technique in the ancient Near East could lay, wall, lay walls 300 yards long. They were so straight, they were with a one-eighth inch of tolerance. After 300 yards, just using primitive tools, they were able to make straight walls. There are buildings in Peru which are still standing. They're 2,500 years old with stones that are laid and they are cut so completely well that there is no mortar between them. And in fact, you cannot put a piece of paper between them because it doesn't fit in the joints. And so when Peter says Jesus is the cornerstone. The reason the cornerstone matters is because that angle has to be 90 degrees perfectly. And if it's not perfect in the way that it's laid, not just in relationship to the rest of the building, but in the relationship to, to the sun, it's not going to make the house work right. The walls are going to be wonky. And the chief cornerstone is not just a cornerstone for that building, it's the cornerstone for the rest of the city because it lays out not only the walls of that building, but every street that's going to be around it. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. But the key is that the text is passive. We are being built into spiritual community. You can't do it by yourself. You can't make it happen by yourself. All it takes is time and presence and a, and a resilience to focus on the work of God that's happening in your life. And then it just sort of, it happens. It's one of these spiritual mysteries that occurs that when you spend time together, loving God together, worshiping God together, taking care of God's people together, you are formed. You are being built into a spiritual community. And there's a million reasons why you think that you don't belong here. 
Because there's people with PhDs and people that barely made it out of middle school. There are people here that are really well-dressed and people that are dressed as well as they can. There are people here with noisy kids. And there's people here that resent that. And there's people here that desperately wish they could have that. And if you have a noisy kid, I need you to know my third, third son is louder than anybody else's. And that's okay. Noisy kids have a place at this building, this breathing building. We come from different places. In the course of my life, I've lived in Colorado and California and Texas. And the unique thing that all those three states have in common is they all think they're the best state. And if you're not from there, people in Colorado, I'm not making this up, people in Colorado have a bumper sticker that has the word native on it. Like they need to prove I was born here, right? The rest of y'all are transplants. Um, Y'all, the rest of you, real Colorado would never say that. The rest of you are transplants. You don't belong here, right? Austin natives are about to start putting that on their bumper stickers too. Some of us aren't from here. We're not Texans. Some of us have lived in Abilene for three generations deep. We also have different ideas. Different ideas about politics or or what, what the mission of our church is or how the vision of what we do should be carried out. I have a friend that said the only thing that was holding our church together is our collective ignorance of each other. Like if we really started to have conversations, we'd really start to have problems. There's a million reasons why you think you don't belong here. But Peter says, you are being built. You are being formed. You are breathing stones. And you don't need a lot of mortar. You don't need a lot of distance between the stone that came below you and the stone that comes behind you. In fact, I think in the the temple of God, this living building that's being built by the power of the Spirit and the nature of Christ's love, the less mortar, the better. The closer that we are, the better. Because Peter wants to say that you are chosen. That God chose you to be the closest representation of what God's being is like. Out of everything in the universe, God chose you. You are royal. You are destined from kings and queens. You are spiritual family that has lineage. And that lineage has stories of others that have gone before us who have served in powerful ways and meaningful ways. And in big ways and in small ways. You are holy. And last week we talked about that the best definition of holy means you are on the part of the side of life in the battle and the struggle between life and death that God always fights for life. You are holy. And last, Peter says, you are God's treasure. If you went to the storehouse of God and you went to the safest locked room in the storehouse of God, and you found the safe in that safe room, and inside of the safe is a picture of you. You are God's treasure. 
God values you more than anything else in the entire world. God picked you and formed you and shaped you. God made you. God put people in your life to cultivate your spirit. God has taken every step in the universe to assure that you will know that God loves you. In fact, God shouts it every day. I love you. And we are being made into a breathing temple. Now in this text, Peter quotes from Isaiah about Cornerstone, but where he finishes. And this is, this is one of the turning points in the book of Peter. He's kind of summing up his first move and he's about to hit his second one. What's coming next is even more powerful than what's already come. But at the end of this move, he quotes from the book of Hosea, which is this really kind of problematic Old Testament prophet. And if you know anything about the Old Testament prophets, you know that there are some wild things that they end up doing. They kind of performance artists in some ways to communicate what, how God feels about Israel to Israel. Sometimes they do things like they lay on one side for years. They dig a hole through their wall. They only eat food cooked from a fire of horse dung, which sounds really gross. Hosea has probably one of the most bizarre metaphors. In the story of Hosea, Hosea says, Israel is like a husband that marries an unfaithful spouse. In fact, God goes to Israel and buys time with the spouse so that she will return. And Hosea names his kids fascinating things. His kids are kind of object lessons for Israel. Hosea's second child is a daughter. And she's named Lo Ruamach, which means there's no mercy. There's no pity. God will have no pity on us. Hosea's third child is a son called Lo Ami, which means not my people. There's also kind of this play on words that he's making there because it could also mean that this child is not my son, speaking to the unfaithfulness of the relationship. Peter says, you were once a people that had no mercy. You were once a people that were not mine. And it's unmistakable that he's referencing the story of Hosea because where Hosea ends is a deep and unfulfilled longing. An unfulfilled longing for these, these two children's names to be made right. Once we were a people who had no mercy, but through Christ we received mercy. Once we were a people who were, had no, no people, we had nobody, but through the living, breathing temple, we have become God's people. Once we were exiles, living as strangers in the neighborhoods we grew up in. But Peter wants to end this place by saying, but you, but you are God's people. You have received God's mercy. 
You are chosen. You are royal. You are holy. You are God's prized treasure. And our response is to declare the praises of the one who took us from darkness and into God's wonderful light. Let us stand and let us sing those praises now. So this morning I took a selfie and I put it side by side with that passport photo. Don't do that. That's not a good idea. That's not a way to start your day. There are a million reasons that our culture and the evil one will tell you that you do not belong. There are a million reasons why you can psych yourself out into being part of this community where you get formed into the image of Jesus more perfectly day by day and week by week. Do not listen to those voices. You are chosen. You are royal. You are holy. You are God's prized possession. So let us live in holy fear as we serve our time as exiles in this place. Because what you're going to find out is it's better here.